So our values, the Bible, risk-taking faith, bold evangelism, selfless service, intentional discipleship, and the Great Commission. So we're talking about risk-taking faith uh, this morning. Um, I don't know if some of you may have uh, seen the movie uh, End of the Spear or about uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Saint. Uh, so Jim Elliott was a missionary in Ecuador in the 1950s. And at the age of 29, he and four of his friends could not escape the burning call to take the gospel to the Wodani people of Ecuador. Uh, so Jim had already planted multiple churches, and he had uh, been a missionary in Ecuador already for some time, reaching uh, the Ecuadorian people. But this, this tribe, the Wodani tribe, was a fierce tribe. Uh, they were known to be hostile and known for killing outsiders, uh, but they had never heard the gospel before. They knew nothing about Jesus, and they were perishing without Christ. And this deeply burdened Jim Elliott's heart. It burdened the heart of his friends. And uh, all of whom, by the way, were in their late 20s and early 30s. They were all young men, and they were married with young children. Uh, but they felt that God was calling them to take the gospel to the Wodani. And so they planned and they prayed for months. And finally the day came, and they were actually they were flown in uh, to a tiny little island in a little prop plane uh, in the middle of the jungle. They had to be flown in one by one uh, so that they could make contact with the Wodani. And the first day, they made contact. They had an initial good contact. They were excited. They came across uh, two Wodani women and a Wodani man, and they were able to uh, try to communicate. They didn't know the language. It was a new language. They gave them gifts, and they were excited uh, about uh, what was going to come. They were excited about the future, and uh, they woke up the next day, and, um, and, and again, a couple of uh, Wodani women and a Wodani man came uh, out of the brush, and as they approached them, uh, to begin to meet them, um, a, a vast number of Wodani warriors ambushed them, uh, came out of the trees, uh, rushed them with spears, and speared Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and the rest of the missionaries to death right there on that little beach on an island in the middle of the jungle in Ecuador. All five men died that day on that beach. Now, many would look at this story and hear that and think, what a waste. What a waste of life. What a tragedy that young men would die. But Jim Elliott was uh, known for saying and fond of saying, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To Jim Elliott, demonstrating risk-taking faith was worth it. It wasn't the end of the story uh, that day when they died on that beach. In less than two years, Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliott, her daughter Valerie and Rachel Saint, Nate Saint's sister, one of the other missionaries, were able to move to the Wodani village. Many Wodani people turned to the Lord in response to the love and the forgiveness that they were shown from the families of these men who had died in response to their hostility. Even the warriors who killed the missionaries that day were saved. Many of them were saved. In fact, one amazing part of the story is that Steve Saint, who was a young boy when his father, Nate Saint, was murdered, um, ended up staying in with his, with his mother, staying in Ecuador, and actually lived amongst the Wodani. In fact, Steve Saint was baptized in the very same river that his father was murdered by the very same warriors who murdered his father. This is a great example of one of our values, risk-taking faith. What does risk-taking faith mean? What is, when we say that, what do we mean? Well, it means that if we can do it without God, then we don't want to do it. 
It's being willing to put to be put in circumstances where God has to show up or we're sunk. We're in big trouble. We all we want all we do as a church to be done by faith. We want to bank our lives on God's promises. We want to put all of our eggs in the basket of what God has said, and we want to step out in faith on God's word and what God has said, even if the circumstances dictate that this is crazy. You know, faith, that whole concept of faith really is misunderstood. There are many people who claim to have faith in God, but genuine faith is accompanied by action. And it's, it's easy to hear stories like the one I just shared and wonder why we don't see God do things like that more often here. I mean, an entire village of, 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 of people who had never heard the gospel, who were hostile, who killed these missionaries, and then they just start turning to the Lord in droves and their lives are transformed. And we wonder, why don't we see things like that happen today? Why don't we see things like that happen here? I think that the answer is really quite simple. I think that we would see things like that if we lived with the same type of risk-taking faith that Jim Elliott lived with. You know, God has not changed. Matthew 13, 58 says this of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. It says that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. I think the same indictment could be laid at our feet. You know, we're much more prone to rely on our money, our ingenuity, our wisdom, and our cleverness because it's safer. But my prayer for my life and for your life and for our church is that 2021 would be marked by a radical, risk-taking faith in God and His promises. Because I don't want to just hear stories about God's salvation and power. I want to see God do it here. And I believe that He will if we step out in faith. This morning we're going to be looking at a story from the book of Numbers that illustrates risk-taking faith very well. This passage highlights both the consequences of unbelief and the blessings of risk-taking faith. It begins in Numbers chapter 13. Numbers is the fourth book in your Bible. I hope that you brought your Bible, and if you have it, I'd encourage you to turn there. Numbers chapter 13. And as you turn there, I want to give some backdrop to kind of help set the stage for this story. So um, just to catch us up, in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abraham. And he called Abraham to follow him, and he promised Abraham. He made a covenant with him. He said, I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as, uh, uh, as the stars. And he said, I'm going to give you this land in which you're sojourning, the land of Canaan. I'm going to give this land to your descendants. But first... Your descendants will be enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And that's exactly what happened. And after 400 years of slavery, in the book of Exodus, we read about how God powerfully delivered Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, from Egypt and from Pharaoh with signs and wonders. And God parted the Red Sea so that the people of Israel could pass through and the Red Sea collapsed in on the entire Egyptian army. God delivered them. And then in the wilderness, God fed them miraculously with manna that just showed up every single morning. He provided them with water from the rock so that they could survive in the middle of the desert. And God assured Israel that he would bring them into the promised land. In fact, 55 times... 
In the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Old Testament, God promises that he's going to bring the people of Israel into the promised land. For example, in Exodus 6, 8, he says to Moses and to Aaron, he says, I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. For in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 24, the Lord says to the people of Israel, he says, you will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. So by the time we arrive at, cha- at Numbers chapter 13, the people of Israel are on the brink of the promised land. They're just outside of it, and the, the tension is being built up. They're just about ready to receive God's promise, to take what God has promised to give them. This is a huge climactic moment in the story of Scripture. And so in preparation of this big moment, God told Moses to send 12 spies to scope out the land. And so the spies, they went into the land and they came back with their report. And that's where we're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. So let's start reading. This is what God's Word says. I'm going to read verse 25 to 29. I'm not going to read this entire passage up front. We're going to work through it bit by bit this morning uh, because it is a story, it is a narrative, and we're going to treat it as such. Here's what Numbers 13, 25 says, says, At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. And they showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So, the report starts out good enough. They say, hey, The land is indeed flowing with milk and honey, like the Lord said. I mean, this is a nice place. This would be a great place to settle down. But the positive part of the report is quickly overshadowed by the challenges. The people are strong. The cities are fortified and large. And the descendants of Anak, who were considered to be giants, lived there. So this this is the moment of decision for the people of Israel. It's what Henry Blackaby called the crisis of belief. Every Christian is familiar with these. It's that moment where God puts you in situations where you are clearly overmatched and your only recourse is to trust in Him or run. Are you facing a crisis of belief right now in your life? Is there something God is calling you to obey Him in that you're hesitant about because the obstacle looks pretty strong? It looks pretty scary? For Israel, their crisis was whether to believe God would give them the promised land, even though the enemy was far more powerful than they were. Let's keep reading to see what they did, to see the response. Let's pick up in verse 30. It says, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. 
Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. So we have two contrasting reactions to this crisis of belief here. Joshua and Caleb believed God would give them the promised land, no matter how big the enemy was. And the rest of the people saw the size of the enemy, and they threw their hands up in despair. I want to take a little closer look at the root of unbelief, and then we'll look at the root of risk-taking faith that we see in Joshua and Caleb. Look again with me at, at verse 31. The spies, the ten spies, they say, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, I don't want you to miss how preposterous this statement is. And I think recalling some context will help. Okay, These are the same people who just months before watched God wipe out the entire Egyptian army, along with Pharaoh. Egypt was the greatest empire on the earth at the time. There was no empire stronger than Egypt. There was no military stronger than Egypt's military. And these very people just months earlier had watched God subdue the entire Egyptian army and crush them and deliver them with miraculous signs and wonders. And these are the people who are saying, these Canaanites are stronger than us. There's there's not even a mention of God at all in their response. It's like they forget that God exists. What they should have said was, they are strong, but they are not stronger than God. But spiritual amnesia had already set in. How quickly we forget all the ways that God has protected and provided for us in the past, don't we? Let's keep looking. Look at verse 32 and 33. Then they say this, they say, the land devours its inhabitants. There we saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. So I want to point something out to you. What they're doing here is they're exaggerating the threat. Just earlier, when they had brought the initial report in verses 26 to 29, they said it was a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, now it's a land that devours its inhabitants. And earlier they had said, well, the descendants of Anak were there, but now it's the Nephilim. The Nephilim were mythological giants. Guess what? There weren't actually Nephilim in the land of Canaan. They were people who were bigger in stature than the people of Israel, but they were not mythological giants in the land of Canaan, but they were exaggerating the problem. They were so afraid, they were so fixated on the obstacle that they lost sight of God's greatness, they lost sight of God's, of, of God's glory, and they were like building up a boogeyman in their minds of how terrifying 
these people were, rather than fixing their eyes on the greatness of God. And then in in chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, we see the fruit of this unbelief. We see what happens and how people's faith just deteriorates whenever they begin to stop trusting in God. So in verse, chapter 14, verses 1 to 4, they, they grumble against God and His appointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. And they resolve to go back to Egypt, even after all that God had done. And in verse 4, they say, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I mean, what they're really saying there is, let's do things our own way. We're taking charge here. God, you're fired. We're going to do things our way. The bottom line here is that the Israelites did not want to be put in a position where they actually had to trust God. That's the long and short of it. By their actions, they clearly indicated that they would only enter into the promised land if they felt like it was easy enough for them to do it on their own. Are we not tempted to do the same thing? The unbelieving heart wants to know the outcome before he or she is willing to obey God. I'll obey God if I know the outcome. But if there's any uncertainty in it, I'm not going to take that risk. The problem with that is that God often intentionally puts us in positions where we are clearly overmatched on purpose all the time. This is all over the Bible. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, then you need to be used to a life of being put in situations where you are far too weak to handle it on your own, where you have to trust and depend on God. That's because God wants us to turn away from a prideful and sinful dependence on self and towards a childlike dependence on Him. He wants us to fear Him more than anything else. Let me ask you a question. How often do you intentionally or unintentionally avoid situations where you have to trust God? A very common example of this is evangelism. We know God has called us to do it, but the giants of rejection and persecution loom. A choice has to be made. Are you willing to walk into being mocked, rejected, and reproached along with Jesus? Do you believe God's promises like, blessed are the persecuted and my word will not return to me void? Or will you sail for the safer and more, uh, and more comfortable shores of unbelief and disobedience to the Great Commission. It's far easier to avoid evangelism because then you get to stay in control, right? You can avoid going up against the descendants of Anak. But sadly, you miss out on the thrill of watching God fight on your behalf and keep His promises. You miss out on seeing God do amazing works like the salvation of the Wodani people. And if you persist in disobedience to God's commands due to a lack of faith, eventually it will result in a hardened heart that rebels against God, just like we see the people of Israel do in chapter 14. Now, Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, reacted much differently than the rest of the people of Israel. Look, look with me at verses 6 to 9 of chapter 14. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, 
the land which we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. The main thrust of Joshua and Caleb's argument here comes at the end of verse 9. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. For Joshua and Caleb, knowing that God was with them was the only thing that they needed. For them, it wouldn't have mattered if the Canaanites were a thousand feet tall, shooting laser beams out of their eyes. That didn't matter. All that mattered was God is with us. The circumstances were inconsequential because nothing is stronger than God. God's presence is always greater than our perception. How we need this perspective today, church. So many Christians. I see Christians running around like chickens with their heads cut off, panicking at the news. Our favorite political party loses control and we think it's time to take things into our own hands and fight. A virus starts spreading and we forget that Jesus rose from the dead. The only factor that matters is whether God is with us. The only way you will gain this perspective is with the fear of the Lord. As long as you have a small view of God, your circumstances will loom large. The unbelief of the Israelites in the story was rooted in a lack of the fear of the Lord. That's what led them to cowardly run from God's call. And tragically, as a result, they missed out on God's blessing of the promised land. The anger of God was kindled against their unbelief. Verse 11 and 12 says, The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. The people of Israel despised God by having no reverence or awe for Him. They essentially dishonored God by looking at some Canaanites and thinking, God can't handle that problem. They're bigger than Him. This is why disobedience to God's commands is so wicked and serious. When you disobey God's commands, you are saying, I don't trust what you have to say, God. I'm going to do things my way. To disobey God's word is to despise Him. Are you, diso- are you despising the Lord in your life right now by disobeying His commands? Brothers and sisters, unbelief is a serious sin. The Lord threatened to disinherit Israel and start over with Moses, but we don't have to time to read it all, but Moses interceded for Israel and he appealed to God's reputation among the nations and he appealed to God's character as being merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. And so God relented. He didn't make a full end to the nation of Israel. But in his righteous judgment, he did not allow any of the faithful of the faithless from the faithless generation to enter into the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. Only Joshua and Caleb from this generation entered into the promised land because of their faith. 
Look at verse 22 and 24. The Lord says, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the lamb that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. And the message here is clear. It's by faith alone that we inherit the promises and the salvation of God. I want to read to you how the author of Hebrews interprets this story for the church today. I want to read you, it's Hebrews 3, 12, and I want to go to the, actually into chapter 4, verse 2. Kind of a, a lengthy passage, but I think it's worth reading. Here's what it says. It says, Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt and led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the author of Hebrews here is teaching us that Numbers 13 and 14 is written for our instruction and as a warning for us. As Christians, we're not wandering in a literal wilderness trying to take over a physical promised land, but we are in a wilderness of sorts as we await Jesus' return when He will create a new heavens and a new earth. That's the rest that the author of, of Hebrews refers to here in this passage. This world is broken due to sin. That's pretty obvious. Chaos abounds, and death is a stark reality. God's good design has been corrupted by sin, by our sin. But God, because of the great love with which He loved us, even while we were dead in our sin, He sent His one and only Son, Jesus. Jesus came to die on the cross for our sin in our place, and then three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, defeating death. And Scripture tells us that Jesus is coming back again to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new, an eternal promised land. And it is by faith in Jesus alone that one can enter into this promised eternal rest. So the author of Hebrews is exhorting us as believers not to turn away from our trust in Jesus like the faithless Israelites did in Numbers 13 and 14. And notice the link in this passage in Hebrews 3 between unbelief and obedience in verses 18 to 19. 
He says, whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. There's a parallel there between unbelief and disobedience. I have two important questions to ask everyone in this room. The first question is, are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? I'm not asking if you've done more good things than bad things in your life. I'm not asking if you're a good person. That won't get you to heaven. Trusting in your your own works is the equivalent of trying to turn back to Egypt and do things your way. To do so is to despise God's free gift of salvation, which is a grave sin. To despise God's offer of salvation in Christ is the worst sin because it keeps you out of heaven and it pits you as God's enemy, which you don't want to be. Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. Don't harden your heart to this free gift that God wants to give you today like the Israelites did in the wilderness. Do you see? That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. God wanted to give the people of Israel the promised land. He had already made it possible. He said, just trust me and go in and take it. And they refused. Don't refuse God's free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ this morning. Please. The second question I have for everybody here today is, does your lifestyle indicate that you are living with risk-taking faith in God? Could people look at your life and see that? Or have you carefully built the life that looks Christian on the outside, but is able to avoid having to truly depend on God? That's very, very easy to do in America, by the way. I want you to do some honest self-examination. That's what the author of Hebrews is urging us to do. And in Hebrews 4.1, he says, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This passage is addressed to the church. It's addressed to people who are Christians. Trusting in Jesus for salvation is nothing less than risk-taking faith. You cannot be a Christian and play it safe in Egypt. You can't be a Christian and ignore God's commands and His call on your life. God calls us to leave behind our comforts and surrender control of our lives to Him. That's what it means to to worship and serve Jesus as Lord. I was reading this morning in our Bible reading plan in Luke 13, 23 and 24. It says that someone, someone came up to Jesus and said to Him, Lord... Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. I don't want anyone here to deceive themselves into thinking that they have saving faith when they don't. Some may say, I have saving faith. I've been to church all my life. I was baptized as a child. And I'm a good and upright person today. And that may be true, but if you are living for yourself, then you have an ineffective faith. It is a faith that will not save. I want to be clear, obedience doesn't save us. We're saved by faith alone, but a refusal to obey God's word is just a manifestation of unbelief. The narrow door into the kingdom of God is risk-taking faith in Jesus Christ. And it's my earnest desire that each of you would be saved. 
That's one of my jobs as your pastor is to do what Hebrews 3 says, to exhort one another every day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, so that none of you will turn back from God's promise like the Israelites did in the wilderness. So if that's you, if you're thinking about turning back, I think about... um, Verses 5 and 6 of Numbers 14, I just, this really stuck out to me this morning in response to the people of Israel saying, let's go back to Egypt. In verse 5 it says that Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to the people, the land is a good land. And they They go on to plead with the people, don't turn back from trusting the Lord. Don't turn away from God's promise. Trust God. That's what I'm doing this morning. Don't turn back from trusting the Lord. He can be trusted. And Can I let you in on a little secret too, by the way? If you haven't already figured it out, risk-taking faith is actually an oxymoron. Because trusting God is not a risk. Risk is only possible if you're uncertain of the outcome. But there's no uncertainty with God. At the cross, God proved His love for us. There's no greater gift He could have given us than the precious life of Jesus Christ. Jesus shed His blood for us on the cross. We don't have to question whether or not God is for us. And in the resurrection... He proved his power over even the greatest of obstacles, even over the greatest of, op- uh, of giants when Jesus defeated death and rose from the grave. So we don't have to be uncertain about the outcome if we trust in God. I love how Paul puts it in Philippians 1.21. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's a great summary of our assurance as believers. The worst thing that could happen to us, death, just turns out to be gain for Christians, which is what frees us to live with risk-taking faith. We don't have to turn back like the faithless Israelites in the wilderness. We can trust God. We have every reason to trust Him. I love this quote from John Piper. He says, when the threat of death becomes a door to paradise, the final barrier to temporal risk is broken. That's why Stephen could forgive his murderers and praise God as he was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. That's why Polycarp could respond when threatened with being burned at the stake. 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I turn now and blaspheme my Lord and Savior Jesus? That's why Jim Elliot and his four friends could risk going to the Wodani to bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because they knew they couldn't die. They knew that a risk for Christ is no risk at all. They knew that to die is gain. I want us to be a church filled with Christians living with risk-taking faith. Living with risk-taking faith means living a life that would not be possible if God did not come through. I don't want us to shelter ourselves from living lives that have to trust God. I want us to be a church filled with Christians who obey God's word even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it means facing the giants of a knock. I want you to put God's word to the test and see if he doesn't come through on keeping his promises. 
The world needs Christians who act like Christians, like biblical Christians that Jesus calls us to be. So what does this risk-taking faith look like at Pillar DC as a whole for our church? As a church, we're shoving all of our chips in on what God has said. If we can do it without God, then we won't do it. If God calls us to give away the last $500 in our church budget to help support a missionary, then that's what we're going to do because we know that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he can easily provide for us. If we're ordered to stop proclaiming the gospel, we will respectfully refuse because we know God is bigger and greater than Caesar. If we're asked to compromise or change our beliefs because they're unpopular so that our numbers will go up, we will lovingly decline because we know that God blesses obedience, but that, as Proverbs 10.2 says, ill-gotten gains have no lasting value. We will send out our best leaders into the mission field to go to unreached people groups and to plant churches. We will not hoard our best leaders because Jesus is Lord over the harvest. He's able to raise up children of Abraham from stones. As a church, we will say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as we live, we will live for Christ. And when we die, that will be even better because then we will be with Christ. I want to close by mentioning just a couple of specific examples of how risk-taking faith can apply to your life. Perhaps God is stirring you to go to the nations and take the gospel to hard-to-reach peoples in hard-to-reach places. You know, most of the unreached people groups in the world are in the Middle East. There's a reason for that. Because the dangerous places are harder to reach. But for someone who believes that to die is gain, perhaps the Middle East isn't so dangerous after all. And it's not just the Middle East. God may be calling you to plant a church in Baltimore or to be a missionary in Mexico. The question is, are you willing to go? Are you willing to say, here I am, send me and give God control over your life? Or do you want to live like the faithless Israelites and play it safe and go back to Egypt? It's going to mean dying to your vision for your life, but I can promise you that God has a much, much better vision than you do for your life. You know, the rebels in the spy story, they wanted to save their lives by refusing to trust God's call to go into the promised land. But Jesus is clear in the call to discipleship in Luke 9.24. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Lose your life for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. May God make us all willing to lose our lives for Jesus' sake. Another way that risk-taking faith applies to you individually is giving with radical generosity. Now, God has called us to be cheerful, sacrificial givers. Let me ask you a question. Are you tithing and giving of your finances in a way where it kind of hurts, where you actually have to trust God with your finances, where you know that you're going to be a little bit uncomfortable and you need God to provide for you. It's not about the amount you give. It's the faith with which you give. 
Some of you may be familiar with the story of when Jesus was in the temple and he observed some uh, some scribes coming in who were wealthy and they made a big show of dumping in all of their coins into the offering box. And then a widow came in and she had two small copper coins and she put it in and Jesus told his disciples, you see that widow? She just gave more than all of these other people because she gave all that she had to live on. She gave out of faith. These other guys, yeah, they threw in a chunk of change, but that was chump change for them. But this woman, she trusted me. She trusted God by giving sacrificially. That's what God calls us to do. He calls us to trust Him and live with risk-taking faith in every area of our life, including finances. So I'll just ask you, are you doing that in your life? Are you trusting God? I'll, I'll put it like this. If the amount that you're giving on a monthly basis doesn't change, the, change around the way that you're budgeting your finances, then you're probably not giving sacrificially. If it doesn't make a dent and you're just giving what's left over, then you're probably not giving with risk-taking faith. And you need to reevaluate how God wants you to do that. Test God's promise. In Philippians 4.19, God says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I promise you He'll do it. I've watched Him do it in my life for as long as I've served Him. It's amazing how when we step out in risk-taking faith, we get to see God do amazing things. But we all ultimately have two choices. Our lives can resemble the faithless spies, or our lives can resemble the risk-taking faith of Joshua and Caleb. There was nothing extraordinary about Joshua and Caleb. They just believed and obeyed God's word. That was it. There's nothing extraordinary about them. And God can and will do the same things through you, And you'll get to watch God work in mighty and powerful ways if you'll just believe and obey Him. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You guys remember that old song? It's simple, but it's true. That's Christianity. That's what we're all called to do. It seems so simple, but if this risk-taking faith marks our lives and our church, it will bring untold blessings.